before we get started, I do want to um, plug something that's on the back table there. Um, there are loads of these books, and there are loads more. It's probably double or triple the amount that's out that in our little storage room. Um, these are meant for you to take and not give us money for. Just take it and take it and read it, or read like a chapter and forget about it and then read a chapter a month later when you feel too guilty, um, or whatever how it might be. Or if it's something where you're like, oh, that might be something good that uh, this other friend of mine uh, maybe wants to read or something like that. There, one, there's two reasons we're doing this. One is um, reading books about God and about the Bible is a very helpful thing. Um, it's helpful, but also the topic is something you probably generally we don't get to every day. And the size of these chapters, there's like, I don't know, a lot of chapters. No, they don't label them. There's probably like 50 chapters. They're like a, two pages or so. The content is all about um, the attributes of God, like who God is. And so it's kind of dense stuff, but uh, practical stuff in a very kind of short amount of time. So that's why we have these out. So steal them. Um, you can't really steal them if someone gives away, can you? But uh, take them, I guess. Uh, use them as doorstops or whatever. Um, right, well, the, this is a series that we kind of periodically go to, Church Near Me, um, and one of the reasons why we do that is the one, number one Googled phrase when someone's looking for a church is church near me, and then they, the churches come up and they find, maybe some of you found Redeemer through that way. Um, so some of this is to, uh, uh, to, to ask what are people searching for when they're searching for the church? There's the other aspect of, like, what does the Bible tell us about how, what church we ought to be? What church should people find when they search church near me? And so this is kind of our um, attempt to go deeper into some of those more specific questions. And as we just took however many, 20 weeks or whatever it is, going through Isaiah, 15, 16 chapters in Isaiah, now we're going to take four weeks to go through one chapter into Corinthians. Uh, and what we're hoping is to come away with a better answer uh, or more full answer to that question. Like, what is, what, how does the Bible tell us what, how we ought to be? Now, the author of this book, his name is Paul. He's writing to the church in the city of Corinth. Unlike today, there was the church in Corinth. Like, that's it. You live in Corinth, that's the church you go to. Ah, but they raise their hands. I'm uncomfortable like that. Sorry. Um, but they're, like, super reserved, and they don't raise their hands. Sorry. Uh, they sing hymns only. Sorry. They only sing psalms. All the, it doesn't matter. Like, that's the church you go to if you're a Christian. And in this church, there are people who are coming in the name of Christianity but aren't really acting like Christians, uh, or at least not really acting how Christians ought to. Uh, they are not out to make disciples of Christ. They're out to make disciples of themselves. So these are people with the, who are calling themselves Christians. And this is a time when it's not really that fashionable to call yourself a Christian either. So that's within the church. Outside the church, the general culture of Corinth was new money. It was a port city, and people were making money. Everybody wanted a little piece. Everybody wanted their piece of the pie. So there was a lack of honesty, a lack of integrity, a lack of authenticity. So climbing the ladder of success was important inside and outside the church for people. So the same problem outside was the same problem inside. The church is called to be a community of people brought into the light, reflecting that light into the world, not stealing what like, the world has and trying to do our own thing, own version of it. But if Jesus isn't our life, this is an impossible thing to do. Others miss out, and we miss out. Now, having Jesus in our life, that's a really big idea, and that's actually kind of like the main theme over these four weeks. What does it mean for Jesus to be in your life? Uh, that's a massive idea, so we're going to break it down into a four kind of different sections. This week, we're going to talk about if Jesus is in our life, then uh, Jesus is our purpose. Next week, we have Jesus in our weakness. The week after that, Jesus in our words. And the last one is Jesus is our hope. So we're going to break that big idea, Jesus in our life, into these small little sections. 
Now, one of the reasons that people Google church near me is the idea that there must be something more to this life than what we see. Like, there must be something bigger out there than like my career or my family or having fun on the weekends or whatever. And there are lots of other things out there for us. There are all those things. There's the family, the career, going out on weekends, the house, stuff to buy, getting that promotion, money, drink, whatever it is. There are many shiny things that we seek after. And when we get them, it can be really great. And also it can be a bit of a letdown. Like Christmas as a kid, the lead up to Christmas as a kid. You remember that? Going to bed on Christmas Eve, did, was that even possible? It was like, I'm just like vibrating with energy, like just, um, I wonder why Colin's always so excited about things. Can't be possibly anything about me. Um, I'm, I mean, you're so excited you can't sleep because Christmas Day is amazing. All your dreams are going to come true on Christmas Day. You're going to get that thing that you've been like wishing and hoping for and like dropping hints for that are maybe not so subtle. But the day after Christmas, it's a bit of a letdown, especially in America. There's not even a day to market. There's no Boxing Day in America. So you're just kind of there. And, and then the week in between Christmas and New Year's, like a dead week, isn't it? It's kind of like, as a kid, that's a bit of a letdown. Now that happens to us as children, but I wonder if that's a bit like our lives as adults. You work like crazy, you get the promotion. Oh, that's really great. And it doesn't take long for that glisten to kind of fade a little bit. And then what do you do now? Well, I guess I work more, get another promotion, or maybe I get a hobby. I don't know. We find the partner, and that's amazing. We get married. We even have kids. But what do we do now? Because the loneliness is still there. I don't know. Will we maybe have an affair? Maybe get a divorce? Get a hobby? I don't know. Or just kind of silently give up. Now, all these things can be great. Finding a house, a hobby, getting married, career. Um, all those things can be great. But our hearts will always be left wanting something more than that. And that kind of frustration that we get is actually a good thing. We should always be wanting to get the most out of life that we can. That shows us that there's something alive in us, that there's something kind of that hasn't died yet. And the problem is where we direct that energy, especially when we're frustrated with what we're getting out of life. By ourselves, we're not really great at directing it where it ought to go. And we set our sights too low is often really what happens. See, we are built to have a purpose beyond this world, and our meaning is meant to come from something bigger than this world. Our necks are stuck in this like horizontal position, and we can't look up. Like, we're just kind of stuck here. And so we try and find the meaning that we get vertically, like through interacting with God and all the kind of things that he has to say to us and things we have to say to him, but we don't take the time to even look up. We'll never find that vertical meaning through horizontal means. It'll never happen. We try and make that happen all the time, try and stuff it in, but it will never happen. And this is why we need Jesus in our life, because he's the one who directs our gaze towards what we really need. Instead of a purpose that we have to work like hell for, which is a great phrase when you think about that. We do work like hell. Instead of living like that, he gives us a purpose as a gift from heaven. So we need Jesus in our life to give us a purpose. And if Jesus is in your life, Jesus is your purpose. Now, you, you, we're successful or less successful different ways in how that works in our lives. We're all like that. But if Jesus is in your life, then he is your purpose. That's, that's the truth. So, what are people searching for when they search for a church? Well, what, I don't know, loads of things, but what I hope they find is Jesus in our life, and especially these verses in particular. God tells us that Jesus is our purpose. Now, the very first thing we get is that Jesus uh, re has remade us for a purpose. He has remade us for a purpose. Uh, the first verse, therefore, th uh, since through God's mercy... We have this ministry. We do not lose heart. And then the very last verse that we're looking at today, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us 
the light of the knowledge of God's glory and all those kind of things. So there's a level of being remade here, but not just being remade full stop, being remade for something, for a purpose. And I think when you look at books or online courses or all those kinds of things, uh, YouTube talks about purpose and meaning, um, it always starts with something that we do. But Christianity doesn't start that way. Before anything that comes up about what we should do, all of what we'll be talking about today is first a product of what God has already done in our lives. This is all through, this is what it means to have a life through God's mercy. We are passive. God in his mercy has given us something. And we'll talk about what those things are in a moment. God saw people who needed a purpose, like us, doing whatever we do kind of by ourselves and showed his mercy by giving us a gift. God saw people who needed to be remade and recreated us through his mercy. So needy us, generous God. We are remade for a purpose, and this is a product of knowing a merciful God. Now, Paul even goes so far as to use the creation of the world as a metaphor for what's gone on in our hearts. That's what's going on in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Well, what's that about? That's Genesis 1. May the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Jesus in our life means, before anything, means we get a new life. Jesus in our community means we get a new community. Jesus in our hearts means we get new hearts. This is really good news for people who have necks that are stuck like this and can't look up. The new work that God has done in your heart is on the scale of the creation of the cosmos. That is crazy. Surely, when we're looking for something purposeful and big, we set our sights too low. I don't think you've ever thought, maybe the whole universe is about me. Or maybe you have, and uh, your partner's put you in your place. <laughs> but there's a positive side to that, of there's something about even the creation of the world itself is almost just used as a metaphor for the massive thing that God has already done in your hearts. Now, if God is remaking us, is our, if that's our starting point, your salvation, your being, re, being remade comes with a built-in purpose. When God remade your heart, he gave you a purpose. And it's part of the reason for, for this new life you have. And this is why Paul says this ministry in verse 1. This is Paul uh, talking to a church. And when he says we, he's talking about Paul, who are like the apostles, like the rock star, professional Christian types. And then you have the church, a bunch of people who are just kind of like doing life like all of us. And when he says we, he says all of us in the same boat. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Paul isn't saying, since God has his, uh, through his mercy, I have this great ministry that I'm going to tell you about. It's like, no, this is something that we have. We all have this. Now, you might say, I don't, I, I don't have a ministry. Oh, but you do, because if Jesus has remade you, you do. Now, we're not going to do it, but if you read the previous four chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about what this ministry is. And we see that in these verses, too. We will get to what these verses talk about it. But to condense it all, this ministry you have as a Christian is your actions and your words. That's what your ministry is, your actions and your words. And with actions, there are some things that we don't do, and there's some things that we do. And we find this here in, in these verses here. Uh, so what, some things that we don't do is, well, first, we renounce secret and shameful ways, is what it says in verse 2. Uh, so we don't lose heart. Instead of losing heart, this is what we do. We've renounced living in ways in secret and ways that are living in shame. We don't do things that we know are wrong. All of us know what that is, and when you do it, you know immediately what that's like in your heart. But when we do them, we don't hide. And all of us know what it's like to hide because we all really want to hide too. Hiding can be blaming someone else, can be covering something up, can be disappearing. That little Homer Simpson gif of him like slowly fading into the hedges, that's what we renounce. 
If Jesus is your life, his ethics are now yours. Like, is it, what he says is about money and power and sex and time and our diary and people. So those are things that we don't do. What we do is, and these are kind of big words, which is kind of scary when I first read them. On the contrary, by saying the truth plainly, in uh, verse 2 it says, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Doesn't sound a little prideful? I'm like a model human being. Don't you want to be like me? Is that what's going on here? But hopefully not, because that's one of those things that we renounce. Commending ourselves means offering our lives to serve other people. That's what it means to commend yourselves to everyone's conscience. Now, don't tell me you know the truth if you don't live the truth. It just means either you don't really know it or you choose not to really know it in all parts of your body. We can't know the truth and live in a way that proves otherwise. Because you know who Jesus railed against more than any other people? were all the people who knew the truth and didn't live like it, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Truth has to be powerful in your own life before you can make any kind of statement worth hearing. So before we even talk about what we say, our, our actions have to live in line with what we think we're going to say. Also, the gift of God's mission requires us to see humans as humans. It says we uh, commend ourselves to everyone's conscience, not just people who are like us, not just people who look like us, not just people who, may, who are in the same kind of class as we are, live on the same street, or people who we would initially choose to hang out with on a Friday evening. Everyone's conscience. So we all create lines and boundaries for other people. Here's who's in, here's who's out. But that's just not how God works. God saw that all of us were out and invites everyone to be in. It's for our good that God calls us to love everyone in the same kind of way. So we live with integrity. We don't hide. We commend ourselves to everyone. That's our actions. Here's the other side. So that's actions. Uh, this is words. So just like with actions, there are words that we use and words that we don't use. So what we don't do with words is we don't use deception. We don't, and, uh, we don't uh, distort the word of God. We don't abuse the power of words because words are a powerful thing. We don't abuse the power of words for our own ends to make us look better. We're all tempted to do that, every single person in the world. And we all have different ways that we do it, and we all have different ways that we legitimize doing it. You know, there's little white lies that kind of can big up our ego or make us look better in other people's views. We also don't lie about God's own words. We don't add to what he says. We don't take away from it. Every generation since the birth of the church has, all, it, it, the, has always had the cultural pressure of, of editing the Bible, editing what Jesus has said to match the times. So we don't make God's words surrender to our ideas. That's a ridiculous thought. No matter how right we think we are, we are called, if Jesus is in our life, we're called to submit and surrender to his words to our life. Now, that's not always an easy thing. No one said that was easy. If they did, I'm sorry, they lied to you. It's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing. It's an offensive thing. And it takes a long time to kind of work that out. So that's what we don't do. What we do is we set forth the truth plainly. We set forth the truth only. We know the truth about Jesus, and we make it clear to other people. We know our call to serve others, and we make that clear to other people. We don't make a fuss about ourselves. Uh, we make it about Jesus. Now, if you never use words, and you're just on the action side, then people will only see you as a nice person. People will put you up on a pedestal. Oh, isn't that person so nice? And you know, it's kind of nice to hear that, isn't it? I want to be put on a pedestal. I want to be known as nice. I want to be known as, oh, I'm the guy in the street that, like, will help out when he needs to. You know, all those, whatever kind of thing might be on your, in your head. If you never use words, you will always be seen as a nice person, and Christianity will just be a thing for nice people. And then when people feel like, oh, I can't be a Christian, I'm not really a nice person, and you totally get, don't get what Christianity is all about. And when that happens, instead of Jesus being the hero, you've put yourself in there. 
So we set forth the truth plainly, but also we preach. And this is more than just what's going on right now. And I'll let you rate on a scale of 1 to 10 on how that's going. But we, all of us, we have this ministry. We all preach. I preach what? Because not everybody's going to have, you know, a 30-minute time of talking monologue to somebody. Um, and that's probably a good thing. But what do we preach? We preach that Jesus is Lord. And this is way more than what happens on Sunday. It is what happens on Sunday, Lord willing. If we ever don't do that, then, you know, let's fold this up and do something else. But we are all preaching all the time. We're all making disciples all the time. The question is, who are we making disciples of? What are we preaching about? Are we preaching about ourselves? Are we making disciples of ourselves or someone else? Now, to preach is to love someone enough to craft your words in such a way that they will understand who God is, not in a way that makes you feel good, not in a way that assuages your guilt or your anxiety. It's a uh, completely other-centered, love-kind-of-orientated kind of thing. So that means gospel bombs, gospel grenades, all those kinds of things like, uh, but, um, but here's what the truth is, bam, whether you like it or not, and then everybody is kind of angry at the way you talk in the conversation or at least feels awkward, and then you're like, huh, I guess these people just don't love Jesus. Like, no, actually, you're just a jerk. Like, that's just like, you know we, know, we all know those people who can say the things, you know, you pass out, you give the book, or you pass the tract, or you, whatever the thing is, and then you're actually not involved in someone's life. That's not loving. That's not, that's not how Jesus worked. And really, often what preaching means is just being able to talk about your life and how Jesus has changed it. Sometimes that's going to be the big story thing, but often it's the small things of how Jesus has helped you that week. And when we talk about purpose or mission, sometimes we wrongly think, like our first thought, I'm sure, is we wrongly think of how that's a good thing for other people because they need to know it. But this is not the case because this is written to the church. Like these are people who are calling themselves Christians, these verses that we're reading here. If Jesus is our purpose, he gives us the gift of mission. And this is something that is hopefully good for other people, but it's also good for ourselves as well. Because mission isn't an option in our lives, and this is why mission isn't an option in like our missional communities. We literally organize our church around this. We have to know how the gospel is applied to in our lives first. When we step into the ministry of actions and words, and we all have that, we are forced to depend on God in ways that we wouldn't have had to otherwise. That's a scary thing to do. You're like, I, am I going to talk about this now? Oh my gosh, it's coming out of my mouth. What has happened? Can I retract it? Oh no, now they all think I'm weird. You know, it's a scary thing to do. I was like, did I say that right? Oh, did that, how'd that person respond when they said, hmm, was it a good hmm, was it a bad hmm? I mean, it's very difficult, from American, it's a very difficult thing to tell in this culture. Hmm, well, if they say interesting, you know, it's, that's bad news. But uh, if, what does a hmm mean? You're not really sure unless you know that person. And also what we have to do, we have to ask God for opportunities. And when those opportunities come up, we rely on the Holy Spirit to serve someone, to use our words when that comes up, to know what to say, to know what not to say, when to speak, when not to speak. Now, this doesn't mean you'll always know exactly what to do when you'll do it. I don't think I've ever had an experience of talking to someone about Jesus or the Bible, even small little things, where I knew, ex I knew exactly what I had to say in that moment. I just kind of stepped forward in faith, hoping that God was going to help cover whatever kind of stuff would come out of my mouth. And when we do that, when we step forward in faith, Jesus, the creator of the earth, the recreator of our lives, gets to walk with us. He, and if, if he's with us, then that can overcome the fear of awkwardness. That can overcome uh, any other kind of fears that we might have. And if that's true of Jesus, surely that would encourage us to talk to people more about Jesus. And again, this also present, prevents us from being the weird Christian who like, 
Jesus jukes his way through all the conversations, you know, um, who only listens to someone insofar as they can, like, inject some kind of Bible verse and then walks away. I know that's generally, I mean, from all I know of you guys, that's generally not true of, of, of us. I think probably everyone here, myself included, where we all struggle is not bringing Jesus up enough. It's not that we're like the um, plaster Jesus on a poster board and walk it around town or something. We probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably don't talk about him as much as we ought to. And if we aren't talking about Jesus with anyone, the question we should ask ourselves is how much love do we actually have for others? Now, this isn't like a thing of like, now you have to feel really bad because you don't love anyone else than yourself. What this is, is realize how we're all in that place. We're all needy. We all need to ask God to change our hearts and to give us a love for other people that will overcome those fears of awkwardness that we all have. And that is what prevents this Christian thing from being a selfish endeavor. So Jesus has uh, remade us for a purpose. Um, but there is a battle. We're remade for a purpose, but there is a battle. There's a battle that we are all taken up in. And the first truth of this is in verse 3. Now, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Basically, Paul's saying not everyone is going to believe you. Not everyone's going to jump on board. Not everyone's going to be part of this thing that you're excited about. Not everyone who experiences Jesus through your words and actions will believe. And this great news of being remade for a purpose isn't clear to everyone. There's a veil over it, hiding it. And the next verse tells us where that veil comes from. It says, the God of this age has blinded their minds and they can't see God. The battle that we're in, it's not physical, it's not emotional, it's not intellectual, it's not behavioral, it's not like related to your own passion or even your own emotions. This is a spiritual battle. And the only one who is powerful to overcome the lowercase God of this age is the capital God, the Lord. That's the only one. You can't. We're not good enough. The Lord of hosts. Have you ever heard that term, Lord of hosts, before? That sounds like, I don't know, very regal. But I, I remember for the longest time, I was like, I don't even know what that means. But it sounds cool. Um, I think the message translates it as the God of angel armies. It's a great way to translate that. Like there's these, these, these legions of angels that God can like, you know, dispatch in any way he wants to. This is the, God, the one who's created the world, the strength that comes, the Lord of hosts. The God who created this world, who brings light, he has the power to recreate and bring his light. So that means the battle is about him. It's not about us. We're in the fight. Yes, we're called to be in it, but we're not in charge. And thank God for that. So that means no amount of blood, sweat, and tears by themselves will be enough to have Manchester reflect more of heaven. I mean, it will require those things at times. No amount of care, compassion, and passion, and heart by themselves will see people remade with a new purpose. We need those things, but that's not enough. No amount of theology, philosophy, or best practices by themselves are going to bring about the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. That's something that God is involved in. So it is God who does this work, God who brings the light. We're remade for a purpose. There is a battle, but that battle is spiritual first before anything. So there's a battle kind of outside. There's also a battle um, internally, a battle inside as well, because uh, Paul writes in verse 5, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That battle is inside. We're called servants. I don't like being a servant. Have you ever been treated like a servant? That's not a, that's not a dignified kind of thing. We give maybe, I mean, as Christians especially, we give lip service to servants, but when you're really treated like one, that's a horrible situation. But this is who we are. 
This is who we are. Everyone likes the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one. We, the church, are privileged to be Christ's servants. That's, like, that's, that's a high role that we get to have. Suffering for the sake, not of our name, and although that will happen, uh, suffering for his name. Now that is a battle for everyone. To be a servant is to be like Jesus. That's a battle everyone inside will face. We don't want that. We want to be little kings and queens in the land and gentry of this little kingdom that we've kind of crafted and created of our own. I mean, how do things act? When, how do you act when things don't go your way? When someone has you know, transgressed and you know, committed treason against your little kind of estate, are you a sacrificial servant or a convenient servant? When you serve, are you telling everybody about it? That's, that's part of you being a king. Now, this is a spiritual battle as well, but it, it goes on in the interior. We want the battle to be grand and sweeping. We see ourselves, like we watch something like, uh, I watched uh, the Batman last night with a friend, and everyone's got to put themselves in the position of uh, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson, yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm really like Batman. Driving home, I'm like, I'm in the bat car. I'm doing a thing. You know, we always see ourselves as a hero. There's a reason why superhero films work really well, because we all want to be the hero. We want to be the hero of our own story and get to slay the dragon, but the dragon isn't here. I, the dragon is in me. I'm part of it. And slaying it does not come with an amazing soundtrack where there's like people, like you, you're not seen as heroic. It comes in the slow, mundane work of being transformed into a servant. Now, you fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. When you try and find time to read the Bible and pray. Have you ever tried to do that? And maybe once or twice in your life, you found it a little bit difficult? Probably not very many times, right? For me, sometimes, you know, maybe once a year, if I'm honest, maybe once a year is difficult to do. We always find it difficult. And of course it's going to be difficult. It's a battle. It's never going to, well, there are times when it might be easy. Expect it to be difficult. It's a spiritual battle. A battle where you have a real part to play. The worst thing a soldier can do is confused peacetime and war. We're in a battle. There's a war on. We've been listed to fight. Now, not in your own power, not with our, your own weapons, and not for you. There is no hope to be a servant if we aren't praying. No hope if we aren't consuming as much of God's words as we can. And there really ought to be no expectation, no expectation for God to move in places that he hasn't if we're not asking and pressing in. This is your, all of our jobs, the we. We have this ministry. Everyone here is called together to work together on this. If all your prayers this past week were answered yes right now, how many people would be Christians here sitting among us? How many people would be Christians in your missional communities? Let's say God went and said, like, oh, this week, I'm going to answer all your prayers yes, whatever you pray for. How many people are going to be, will have come to faith in that? We probably don't pray as much as we ought to. We can't really mess around because it's not peacetime, it's war. You have been remade for an important purpose. You have a role to play in this, and there's a spiritual battle we're all in. Now, if all this sounds unattainable, and of course, this, whenever you talk about evangelism or our work as Christians or even like our own hearts, where a lot of people, myself, might often go to is, I am horrible, I cannot do this. But always remember, the battle is the Lord's. You can't do it by yourselves. That's why God has remade you. He hasn't left us alone, but he's with us, and he leads us. And it's because it's God who's in control that we don't lose heart. And this goes back to the first verse, and this is something that Paul will repeat at the very end. So if you feel like this is difficult, yeah, so did these people, so did Paul. So we're, it hasn't changed over 2,000 years. It's probably not going to change in the next 2,000. We're all still here. This goes back to verse 1. Therefore, since 
through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. If this was our battle and we were created to find our own purpose, we would lose heart, and we do when that happens, but it's not ours, it's his. We've been given all of this because God is merciful. This all comes from the heart of the merciful who wants to see more people come to faith, who knows that it's good for the people who do have faith to be on his mission with him. God is at work bringing his light into this world instead of him just doing it himself, and he invites us to join the mission with him. If we know God, life will have its difficulties, but we won't lose heart. If we really know him and live in close relationship with him, we won't lose heart. Now, we will need other people around us with that. This is why it's a we, not an I. That's the point, the, one of the purposes for the church. Now, when we lose heart, because we do, I think it can be for a few different reasons. Here are just some of the things. I think some of these are actually op- complete opposites to what's going on in these verses. The first one is, I think this is my purpose and life is up to me. I have to find or make meaning on my own. This is a labor-intensive process whenever you're doing, engaging in that. Most of the time, it ends up making people cynical because eventually you lose heart. And you're like, ah, oh, there really isn't a whole lot of meaning to be found in the world, so you know, whatever, I guess I'll just get by. And we always settle for something less if it's our own purpose and our own life. So even if you don't end up cynical, let's say you don't, in that 0.01% of people, you still end up with less. Or you might think, I think this is my battle. Like, the fight is up to me. I need to kind of do the things to get the things done. People who strive to do life on their own. They don't ask for help. They aren't quick to apologize. They come at life and relationships like two fists raised, ready to go. I have to do it. And if I don't, I don't even know who I am. Sometimes these people look like achievers on the outside, like life is going really well. But spiritually, life's not going well at all. They can't be honest. And they will lose heart because we aren't made to fight all the time, especially by ourselves. Another thing is uh, we might think is we have to use our own weapons. Basically, I have to keep on leveling up in, in this world. That could be money, power, knowledge, careers, friends, life experiences. These are all weapons we use to keep the void of a meaningless life at bay. Not to mention the void of death that will inevitably come. You have to keep piling these on top, and eventually you're going to lose heart because it's, you just get burned out living like that. Or lastly, I think of myself as royalty instead of the servant class. So we need approval. We need recognition. Acting like royalty means others bow to you, or at least that's what you expect them to do. Others are there for you. Your life is set up so people see you on a pedestal, but not everyone will bow to you because they might know that you're maybe not the awesomest thing in the world. And people don't really want to be around people who act like kings and queens. That's not really enjoyable. You will lose heart because you can't keep up that charade forever. But when we realize that the same God who said, let there be light in the beginning, is the same one who said, let there be light within us, that is the only way that we don't lose heart. Because we are all those things that I just mentioned, all the wrong things we do. We are all those things, right? We even had a time in our service where we confessed, had a time to confess some of those things. But the same God made his light shine in our hearts, and it continues to shine. And through its shining, we get to know the glory of God. The glory of God, that's what we get to know displayed on the face of Jesus. It's that God who has remade us. Not the God who's like disappointed in you and can't wait for you to get your act together. It's that merciful God who's given us a purpose. That God who has commissioned us for a battle and gives us a purpose and gives us all that we need to fight. That God that continually works in us to be like the servant instead of a wannabe queen or king. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together to make this a reality. The Father sent the Son to take on our sin and give us new life. 
And this light can shine in us because Jesus died and rose again to make it happen. That's what salvation is. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to us, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Why should we get that? That's crazy. The Spirit gives us what we need in order to rely on God. He gives us the ability to act as servants. He gives us the words to say. That's also what salvation is. If we don't say these words, whatever they might be for, uh, towards other Christians or to people who aren't believers yet, nobody will ever know. There is an enemy out there. You have a specific role to play here. There's an enemy out there blinding people to the goodness of God. That's an unjust system. And you've been enlisted in this fight, but not by yourself, because we have this ministry. You don't. You don't have this ministry. We have this ministry. You will lose heart if you try and go it alone. And the we isn't just a collection of humans. It's God in our midst. We're not just like a good community that does good things for the community or whatever. This is a supernatural reality of God in our midst. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all at work in this little church that meets in a pub. How is that possible? I don't really know, but I'm glad it is. What are people searching for when they search for a church? Well, we can't be exactly sure, but I hope this is what they will find. The Trinitarian God. Nothing less than this. A Trinitarian God remaking people, mercifully giving out a new purpose, calling us to something more, keeping us so we don't lose heart. Jesus in our life means he is our purpose. And one of the ways that we remember this purpose is by worshiping the Lord.